Our intention is to do three more Sunday nights, and unless I am uh, corrected in, on this, we proceed tonight on overcoming temptation. We've been working on this since January, these overcoming messages. Uh, next Sunday night, Lord willing, will be overcoming discouragement. And then two weeks uh, from tonight, overcoming marital problems. So that's, uh, and that'll, then we'll break away for a, a summer schedule. And I think that it is the plan to do something in the Psalms on Sunday nights, different uh, speakers uh, through June, July, and into August. Well, I'm going to read a passage to you, and I'd like for you to look there with me. If you will, turn to James in chapter 1. James chapter 1. Beginning at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Temptation. I can remember the, the creeks about the neighborhoods and the woods and the, the streets and the hot summers and trips to school. And I can identify with the story that I heard about the little boy because I can, I can readily identify with the temptation factor. This little boy was, uh, oh, I guess he was probably a rambunctious about maybe about fourth or fifth grade. And between his house and the schoolhouse, old, time, old days before you had all kinds of regulations that would have prevented this, that on the way there, there was this nice, uh, fairly fast-running stream, pollution-free, and that uh, there was the, uh, it was a place that had a good place where there was a rope there to swing and drop in the water, and you know, it was just uh, boys who were about 10 10, 9, 10, 11 years of age, really love the spot. And, but yet the, uh, this young boy was given, his, his mother was very much aware of what that situation, what it presented, and uh, knew that as the weather warmed up, you know, it gets up into May, the end of school and such, that it could be a really uh, quite a, um, a temptation, shall we say. And uh, so the, the little boy, he got quite a lecture from his mom. And then the next day, you know, he gets his lunch and he's ready and he goes out the door. And his mother notices that his, the jeans that he's wearing are just a bit full. And a little more so than normally. He's uh, going out the door and she says, wait, what is it? Do you have something on underneath your jeans? He said, yes, I do, Mom. It's my swimming suit, just in case I'm tempted. <laughs> just in case I'm tempted. Well, what is temptation? I have for you a couple of three. I've lifted some statements from what I found to be a helpful article in the 
by G.R. Lewis in the Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia of the Bible. What is temptation? Temptation is the enticement to sin. In other words, to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. I was uh, doing just a little fishing, and on I thought I would check Chally's. This is what the uh, younger people know about this site for book reports, book reviews, and such. And I came on this this week, and it just so happened that he, the subject of temptation popped up. And I lifted it, and it says, a temptation is anything that promises satisfaction at the cost of obedience. Temptation is when circumstances work together so that you, will, you, you have the ability and maybe even the desire to do something that God forbids. And then yet another statement from G.R. Lewis in his article, what is it, why, excuse me, why is it a danger? Because, quote, it strikes at the heart of our relationship to God and his purposes, A temporal advantage may seduce the tempted away from an eternal good. Yes, I started out lightheartedly with the temptation of going into the creek on the way home uh, from school. We may think, well, is there a lot of harm that could be in that? Um, Well, yes, you could consider some potential dangers, but uh, compared to the enormity of what temptation does propose, To most people, temptation is not a humorous thing. What I wish to present to you this evening would be four brief steps in understanding how to get a handle in overcoming temptation. This is not going to guarantee that you're going to, uh, by following these three steps of wisdom, that uh, you're going to distance yourself from temptation. Obviously, that won't be possible as long as you move about in a mortal body. But I hope that it will help you, all of us, to get a handle on what, is, what are the issues involved in temptation and how we can move through it. Now, I need, to, um, I need to present just a couple of other brief items here before we take the first step. That temptation does presuppose some standards. I mean, if there aren't any standards, you're not going to be, so what? A temptation? It wouldn't be a a temptation would be removed of any of its difficulty and, and, and its consequences if there's not some standard. Even if you're not a Christian, you have some kind of code of ethics, something, somewhere, somehow. And so a temptation then would present itself to entice you away from those values that you have. Now, that is where the culture is because sin is defined down now today to what it is that you do that conflicts with your own values rather than that which you are doing which is in disobedience to God's law. But still, the fact remains that temptation does presuppose some standards. And for Christians, it presupposes that there are moral standards. There is God in heaven to whom we answer. And there, are, there is sin, which is a violation of his character and which breaks his, that which breaks his law. There is conscience, which if we're functioning as we should be as a Christian, we should have a well, a finely tuned conscience that is sensitive to the right things and it can be our best friend. So therefore temptation uh, does 
connect with the issue of conscience. Now, temptation does connect with a lot of other, with, if I may take the word sin and just uh, pull it out a bit. Temptation goes in quite a number of areas. It's broad and it's deep in its implications. Where would we be tempted? Historically, there have been these seven deadly sins that the church uh, hammered out and codified, as it were, through back to the second, third century A.D. Seven deadly sins, wrath, greed, sloth, pride, lust, envy, gluttony. In Proverbs 16, 6 and 16 through 19, there's the proud look, there's the lying tongue, there are hands that shed innocent blood, feet that run to bloodshed, there is deceit, there is discord. And then there is that whole range of what uh, Jerry Bridges speaks of in his book, Respectable Sins, that covers a wide range of things like pride, worry, discontent, lack of self-control, impatience, anger, sins of the tongue, the list can go on and on. So we're working in that sphere of accountability and standard that we want to please God and we do not want to be drawn away from his law, which is good, it's perfect. And what I wish then now to present to you would be these four steps of truth toward getting, moving to at least a life where we're working to overcome temptation. The first is this. Overcoming temptation begins with an understanding of the source of temptation. What is that source? Well, as I read in the passage in James chapter 1 and verse 13, let's begin with where it does not come from. That is, it does not begin with God. Don't blame God for any enticement, any pull into a disobedience to the very law that God has given. And we're blame shifters by nature. We better, the sooner we own up to that, the better off we'll be. That we're all in some, in some area, in some ways, and sometimes that we're going to default to blame shifting. It's in our nature. Cassius, as Shakespeare said, and, and Julius Caesar, the fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings. So the first step toward understanding temptation and how to come to grips with it, to deal with it, is not to blame God. I said we're blame shifters. We're blame shifters by nature. One of the, uh, uh, I think, a, an intriguing area of study in history, I've always been fascinated with it, and that is mythology. And what mythology says about human beings, just this like one great big celestial soap opera where you have the gods and the goddesses just cavorting and doing all kinds of wild and crazy things, but if you look at it carefully enough, you will see that Greek mythology is one grand exercise in blame shifting, putting it all off into the realm of the gods, and they're the ones that cause our problems. But back to earth and back to reality and back to scripture, we have blame shifting, blame shifting exemplified from the get-go in Adam and Eve where immediately we find Eve and blame Adam blaming, blaming Eve and Eve blaming Adam and blaming the serpent and by implication blaming God. You have the example of Aaron and it's almost, it, 
you just blush at thinking of what Aaron was doing. Here's the story in Exodus 32. When Aaron has been left in charge of overseeing Israel while Moses is up receiving the commandments, Israel lapses into a uh, grand and ugly experience in group idolatry. And what does Aaron do? He blames the people. He takes the responsibility away from the attempts to take the responsibility away from uh, himself. There are any number of other examples. I won't go into them. But you will find that this tendency to blame others and shift blame is ultimately an attempt to blame God. So we do the same. We may blame God directly. Yes, we can just have a total breakdown in how we understand or we don't understand the doctrine of the sovereignty of God over all the circumstances of life. Every circumstance is under his management, his rule, and his authority. But we can blame others. We may blame circumstances like ancestry. I'm saying when we're tempted that we can try to get ourselves off the hook. We can blame personality. We can blame drugs. We can blame alcohol. We can blame diseases. We can blame a sex drive. And Flip Wilson made it famous The devil made me do it. And there are ways that we can do that, not perhaps so crassly, but to shift it off into the realm of demons and the devil. That if a temptation that comes along that is really incredibly bad and we fall into it, we begin to find ways to try to shift it out into the supernatural world. But God is holy. And we need to drive a nail into this and hold it down fast in our minds. God is holy. He is not capable of being tempted, nor does he tempt anyone to sin. He's sinless. He doesn't seek to lure us into sin. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 3. Thine eyes are too pure to approve evil, and thou canst not look on wickedness with favor. 1 John 1, verse 5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So I'm beginning with temptation at this point because this is where James begins the discussion on temptation. Don't try to pass the buck. As we go deeper into the subject of temptation, and as I hope we begin to get a little bit more uncomfortable than we may be right at the moment, We realize how susceptible we are to it, that we don't go there. It's not God's fault. God didn't set up the circumstances so that we would be lured into sin. Now, let's go to the second factor that's involved here, still the first principle, but this factor that it begins with our sinful hearts. Now, look closely at the text. You'll see, essentially, there are are three. Three movements. I'm going to break it down into four movements. And this is the etiology of, uh, of temptation. This is the way it works. If that is, if you want to take it out and break it down and see it for what it really is, it proceeds along these four lines. First, there is desire. That we seek to satisfy a desire in ways that are outside God's will. And the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is a useful outline for understanding how and where these, these desires erupt. 
to enjoy things, to get things, to do things, and they erupt, therefore the desires come. It may be material possessions to achieve, but desires, desires never should be allowed to rule over us. They should serve us. We should not serve them. So it begins with a desire, something that we want. And that desire then meets a circumstance. And that circumstance will then be ripe for pulling us in the direction of fulfilling that desire. And I'll use, well, let me give you an illustration and then we can, we'll get to the examples. I have those coming. But let's, let's just, the, the, because the language that James uses here lends itself to this. He, he speaks of in terms of, of um, bringing fishing. I'm not a. I'm not, I'm not presenting myself as a um, as a seasoned fisherman, though I did go fishing a few weeks back with my my brother-in-law. And but uh, he he set the he set the lure. He had the he had it all fixed up. All I had to do was just take it and just put it out there. You know the concept. It's not that complicated. Is that you get a lure. That, you know, seasoned fisherman knows what they like, what they don't like, and color and movement, that sort of thing. <clears throat> and obviously I didn't have the right lure that day because it didn't get any bites. Caught some tree limbs. Uh, and uh, the, the lure, you understand the concept, that it's bait. Now, when I was a kid, we went fishing with cane poles and corks in the water trying to catch brim at a local pond. There was some special satisfaction of you watch that little cork, that little plastic bobber, and it's sitting there, the water's smooth, and you got a nice, fat, juicy worm on the end on that hook, and you're waiting. And then all of a sudden you begin to see some little ripples come out from the from the uh, cork or the the bobber, and <clears throat> you see you know something's going on. So your adrenaline begins to come up a little bit. And then that thing goes, it goes under the water. Well, you know what's going on, a little brim underneath. Or if you really want to try to, if, you, <laughs> if it goes too deep and you really get a catfish and you got a cane pole, you got a problem. But, uh, and so it goes down, and what that fish has done, it's come along. It looks like there's lunch. And, wow, that fish is not too intelligent. And it sees it, and there is the hook in it, and you've got it. So this is the idea behind, this is the language that James is using here in verses 14 and 15, is that you hide the trap in the hook, and uh, you, the, the, the trap is in the hook, and you, the bait disguises it. And this is the way the desire works, is there's the desire, you have the circumstances, and then... You take it, and you're gone. I read of this the other day. I read of so many of these. I, I go to the really bad news, the really bad local news section of the newspaper. You know those, what those things are. It's the metro section, and it seems like inevitably, almost every day, there is some fraud case that's come up. People have just embezzled incredible amounts of money. I saw one the other day, three hundred thousand dollars over a period of years. This lady was in the accounting department, and she had access 
to the process of, you know, of uh, purchase orders and payments, and she set up false accounts, and she had the, she had the, uh, the freedom to do it because of their job description, and she just created false accounts, created credit cards with names of uh, the customers on these credit cards, and just had all this money coming in. What's going on here? That's not hard to figure out, is it? What's the desire? Somebody wants to live a better life than they're living economically. And so then the circumstance is, <clears throat> well, I've got a job that lends itself to this. I can play with the books. I can play with the, the, the cash flow. And so there it goes. So therefore, as we move along, there is the next step. Now, let me insert something here. When you deal with desire, there is a... There is a deceptive remedy. We don't have time to unpack it. There is a deceptive remedy that has that been inside the church from day one, namely asceticism. You know what asceticism is? It's a self-denial. It's a denial of one's desires. And so if the battle is fought in playing as if my desires aren't there, well, that really goes off the reservation. And Buddhism builds much of its, <clears throat> its system around uh, suffocating all desire. But within Christianity, there can be those who will think, well, what I need to do is just kill desire. And there is even a kind of view of the Christian life that presents a really artificial, I think, misleading view of dealing with desire, that if you're dead to sin, then dead to, deadness to sin means that you get to the place where you, can, you have the desire, but there's the circumstance, but because you are not alive to sin, you're dead to it, so therefore you don't respond to it. And so you're good. And uh, it's a misuse of Romans in chapter 6. But in passing, I mention that to you because there's some Christian, I've heard it presented to, I've been in an audience where there have been thousands of people and that very idea has been put out there. And uh, I think of all the people who end up, being, end up playing games with themselves and disillusion. Let's go to the second step. Second is deception. All right, there's desire, then there's deception. What happens? The bait keeps us from seeing the consequences of sin. All we can see is something that's going to satisfy that desire. And then, I'm going to keep moving here. I've, as I said, I've got examples, but I want, to, I want to let the back end of this study be heavy with those. Then, thirdly, there is disobedience. So here's the, where the conception takes place in the birth of sin is disobedience. Sin is a choice. And so here, and I quote, we are not unwilling victims of temptation. Charlie's had this in his article. Temptation is not a kidnapper who drags you into his van, kicking and screaming, and takes you where you don't want to go. You climb in all on your own. Deception Desire, deception, disobedience. And then what does James say is the consequence? What does it give birth to? Death. That's the consequence. Death can be physical death. There can be broken fellowship. 
broken fellowship with the Lord, a kind of death. But for the unbeliever, an eternal death. But conclusion, we are responsible for our yielding to temptation. Let's move to the second step. The first one is, I think, I hope I'm clear, the dynamics and the way it works. We're feeling kind of comfortable with ourselves probably this moment. Yeah, this is good. But then it's another story when the temptation comes along. But that's the way it functions. Secondly, overcoming temptation requires a keen eye on the places from which we are attacked. I call this the conspiracy of evil. This is laid out in 1 John chapter 1. Love not the world, nor the things that are in the world. The love of he who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful, boastful pride of life is not from the, uh, uh, from the Father, but from the world. And the world's passing away, and also it's lust. <clears throat> and the world. How does the world present to us its own set of allurements and attractions which stir up desires? Well, uh, things to make a show. That's what I think is involved in the world when he says the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and boastful pride of life, power, prestige, those things that we want, and we want them so badly, we will pursue them. And then there is the flesh. What is the flesh? Flesh is the sinful nature with which we're all born. And that sinful nature, though it's Though its total dominance of our life and rulership in our life is broken in regeneration and conversion, and we don't live under its mastery, but still it makes its allure, its appeal, and it's an enemy to be contended with. So therefore, you know, pride and vainglory and self-indulgence and such. And then the devil is another source from which uh, the temptations may arise, this conspiracy of evil. So the tempter, according to 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, Satan is a tempter. And Satan has an arsenal of weapons, and he's a master at counterfeiting, and he promises freedom. So he is working behind the scenes, uh, um, screw tape letters, and how the evil one works. Now this does present um, some, a point of real interest and questions, undoubtedly. Uh, I'm only going to address it in a kind of a verbal footnote here. All right. If we're facing temptation from the world and the things that the world says are important and we desire to go to those things to get our satisfaction and meaning, we have the flesh, a sinful nature, which it seeks out those things that deceive us into thinking that's where meaning comes from. And the devil, who is a tempter, Do we need to know, or can we know, that Satan and demons are tempting us? I I have a book on temptation uh, that I've been reading, rereading, had it for years by a pastor I really respect, and he's uh, overall he's a good expositor, but he pushes the envelope, I think, on this that you know demons can insert thoughts into your mind, Satan can, though Satan is not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent. He can be everywhere. And, but he delegates to his minions of demons, delegates work and enterprise. 
I will just, I'm just going to put it, leave it at this with this statement. We really don't need to know. You don't need to know. And be careful if, indeed, you are inclined to think that if you have a temptation for a thought to a thought or to a deed, an acquisition, you know, to feel, to get, to do, and if it's really, really dark and sinister, that's got to be a demon. There are some who, who, who go in the direction of thinking, therefore, evil, if it's really, really, really bad and evil, that that must be, from, be demonic and Satan. Well, I would remind you that the human heart, just go to Galatians 5 and 19 and 20 and look what the human heart is capable of. But we don't need to know. We're capable. We are responsible. That's why I ended the first statement. We are responsible. All right, I'm not going to press that any further. Now, I'm coming to the third step, and I'm going to do something very brief on this one. This is, this is why a series like temptation, or excuse me, a message like temptation is these other messages in this series. I can, I can think of a sequence of, uh, or a series on temptation that could go easily, easily four, five, six different sessions. And this would be one session, namely number three. Here it is. Overcoming temptation looks to Jesus as the ultimate overcomer. We have in Christ and in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke, the synoptics, these gospels present to us the temptation of Jesus. It's obviously of special importance. Each gospel writer wants to highlight it. What can we learn from Jesus as the ultimate overcomer? Now, I know that this very subject is loaded with so much that we just have to give a sideward glance. For example, there is the whole issue of peccability and impeccability. What's that? Namely, the question that becomes a jousting among theologians, the occasion for a joust, could Jesus have sinned? Or was it not possible for Jesus to sin? I'm not going there with the time allowance that I have tonight. My own judgment on the matter is that when you look at, when you take your, the theological issues at, um, that are relevant on that subject, you take it all together, that he know he could not have sinned. But what was he being asked to do by Satan? Here's what I want to focus on. So let me walk you through these three items. Satan wanted Jesus to turn stones into bread. What was this? To enjoy. Though there was no sinful nature in Jesus to respond to the temptation as we would, yet here was Satan trying to pull Jesus out to do what? To create an immediate satisfaction of his hunger. Anything wrong with eating? Not at all. Could he have turned stones into bread? Probably the best sourdough bread you've ever put in your mouth. Hot with butter on it and it just melts in your mouth. And Jesus had been without food for 40 days and nights. I don't know how you are without food, but uh, the way my metabolism is, if I miss a meal, I'm, I get strange. And, 
And Jesus is 40 days, and Satan dangles that prospect in front of him and to enjoy. And then, secondly, Satan enticed Jesus to display his power independently of the Father's will, taking him up to the pinnacle of the temple and to throw himself down. And then the angels would come and bear him up. What a show. Talk about a survival show. That would be the one to top them all. And Jesus resisted. And thirdly, Satan wanted Jesus to receive world rulership. Took him up to a mountain to look out over the expanse as far as the eye could see and offered him a rulership over the kingdoms of the world to get. In addition to to do, to do something that was extraordinary, independent of God's will. So there it is, to enjoy, to do, to get. And Jesus turned them all down. Now, I wish to only point out two or three things, and I'm going to leave this temptation of Jesus uh, issue. Not that it's unimportant. It's hugely important. But you will notice that where Jesus came to these temptations, how he came, and the example for us, he was steeped in the scriptures, and in each time, each place, he counters Satan with a quotation from Deuteronomy. Man shall not live by bread alone. And he's ready. And that's, if you will, the sword of the Spirit. And Jesus was not resisting Satan by virtue of his deity. He was resisting Satan by virtue of his spirit-controlled humanity, as he performed most of his miracles, probably. Humanity. He gives us an example. What example would it be if for deity were just doing it solely by de- for deity's sake? How would that be? Well, I can't go there and do that. I'm not deity. But here is spirit-filled humanity meeting Satan in, his, in, in Jesus' most extreme moment. Physically, worn down, hungry. And Jesus meets him because he's steeped in Scripture. And the intention of Satan, of course, was to divert Jesus, to take him away from going directly toward the cross and to discredit him as Messiah. All right, number four. And this is where we'll spend the balance of the time. Number four. Overcoming temptation is found in the sufficiency of God in his word. I want to unpack that. What does it mean, the sufficiency of God in his word? Uh, Let me preface what I'm about to say with some very personal questions about us in temptation, because now we're going to get into some specific temptable situations. Where... The three questions. One is, in assessing ourselves in regard to temptation, is what do you want? What do you want? What do I want? What do, you, do you want uh, happiness? Do you want security? Do you want to be liked? Do you just want peace? Everybody here has some ruling desire. No exceptions. What do you want? What's the most important thing to you? That's the first question. And how you answer it says everything then about the, the temptation factor. Secondly is, uh, who are you? Who are you? Are you a believer? Do you know Christ as your Savior? I will tell you, if you're outside of Christ, you do not know him. You do not have the spirit indwelling within you. You've not been regenerated and you have 
the power of a new affection, you desire to please God, then you know that um, temptation is, eh, you may be a little inconvenienced by it, but it doesn't have the gravity and the weight of what? That you're, you're, you're going to displease God and dishonor his name. So who are you? You believer? And then the third question is this. Have you been doing the necessary God-pursuing workouts for the ability, because I'm about to show us there that we need to know our resources, where are you in terms of your spiritual immune system? What's your resistance like? All right, let's go with it. All right, let me walk along these lines. First of all, know your resources. Know your resources. What are resources? They're obvious, aren't they? You're the choir, as it were, here on Sunday nights. You know that you've got to seek the Lord in prayer. What is it? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, that would be, if I were doing a series on temptation, I would take just one evening on that. But what that prayer is saying is that we go to God and we lay it out before him. Lord, protect me lest Satan slip up on me and I'm blindsided. And you know what I am ready for and what I'm not ready for. And I need discernment and I can be easily deceived. Protect me, Lord. It's a good way to start every day. So we need prayer, our union with Christ, he who dwells within us, the power of the Holy Spirit, the promises of his word. Secondly, alertness. Alertness to the circumstances of life and the schemes of the devil. We're told to be aware of the schemes of the devil, Ephesians in chapter 6. Alertness to the circumstances of life, which means... I am going, I am to be attuned to the temptations to which I am susceptible by, am I going through a period of suffering? Am I dealing with some physical condition that's just, it's chronic, it works on me every day, I get up in the morning with it, I wake up during the night with it. That presents its own set of circumstances of testing. We didn't really unpack that idea from James because, you know, James, he works on that point in the context of James 1, 13 and 14, that God sends tests to us, but there will be attached to tests. There will be temptation. So in suffering, money, the seasons of life, every season of life has its own uh, kinds of temptations. That would be another night we would study temptation. What are the special temptations that you deal with in youth as a young person? Does that shift when you become a young adult, middle life, raising a family? If you get married, you better be sure it does. What about when your mortality begins to really come home to you in your in your late 40s, in your 50s? And then when you get into the sunset years... Are there temptations that you have to deal with that you didn't 
you didn't even um, imagine back when you were 18. Can I understand? Yes, there are. So it's a wise Christian who knows where he or she is. Well, obviously, we do. But understand what's going on in my life? What kind of temptations are particularly bearing down on me? Health, workplace, poverty, prosperity. So areas of strengths and weakness. Do you know those? Have you lived long enough to begin to sort some things out about yourself? What are your strengths? Now, this isn't saying that you can't be tempted in your areas of strengths. That's where this whole matter of struggling and wrestling with sin gets very complicated and difficult. We can be taken down in our strengths. You know, you have an example of that in the Bible. <laughs> Many examples. You have one. You remember Peter. And Peter was the point man. Peter was the one who was out front. He was, he was uh, willing to, he was willing to take risk. Stick his neck out. He pulled his sword out. He cut off the ear of Malchus, the, 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 uh, the servant, who came out when they arrested Jesus. Well, where did Peter fail? He failed in his bravery and his courage because he wimped out and blindsided. So strengths, weaknesses, assess those things. Um, and, and let me just uh, put a little parenthesis in here. Parenthesis, I think a parenthesis would help at this point to under, help us understand what kind of person you are. And if you're maturing in the faith, there is some wisdom in knowing yourself. What are your character traits? Where, where are you apt to be strong in character? What are those things where you're apt to be weak? What do you default to when you're in a jam? When things get difficult, you got to make a quick decision about a relationship, and it's going to cost you something. What 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 are you? What kind of person are you? Your personality, your upbringing. What was it like in the home you grew up in? What did you? How did your per, your parents handle suffering? How did they handle money? How did they handle ooh, alcohol, drugs? Um. I had made a decision early on in life uh, about alcohol because of my family situation. And by God's grace, it was no special strength of my own. It's just that I saw, looked around me, what alcohol had done in, did in my family. And I thought, I don't need to go there. And I'm just going to really play it safe. And besides, I really love iced tea. And... <laughs> It satisfies me, actually, uh, iced tea and lemonade. I'm good. And, but, so know yourself. So I'm not, if, I mean, if, if, if you can drink a little swallow, if you can drink a little wine with your spaghetti, I mean, I'm not to be your judge on that. I'm just saying, know yourself. Know yourself. And your upbringing and your, your parents, that kind of thing. And your own spiritual maturity. How strong are you? What is your resistance level? Um, your, uh, as I said, your blind spots, your fears. What are you afraid of? Are you a leader? Are you a follower? Uh, the condition of your marriage. What's it like? Is it healthy? Is it reasonably strong? Oh, this, this requires probing and thinking. All right, let's go to number the, the next one here. About out of time. There needs to be a full-throttled pursuit of God. Full-throttled pursuit of God. 
You know, back in James in chapter 1 in verses uh, 16 and 17, right, he, he drafts on the statement that he says, look, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Then what does he say? Do not be deceived. My beloved brethren, every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from, a God, from above coming down from the Father of lights. And so, therefore, in this full throttle pursuit of God, God gives me and cultivate, works within me good desires, desires to please him. And those have to be with the things that overtake my, consume me, define me, take over my life. And that I'm not willing to forfeit those, the pleasure of the satisfaction of those desires for lesser desires. See, this is, this is what C.S. Lewis made much of that, you know, the, the day at the beach and the mud pie thing. You know, you've heard that. What will it be? You have a day at the beach or play in the mud pies. And if there is this life that's consumed with the pursuit of God and the enjoyment of his pleasure, the enjoyment of a good conscience, the enjoyment of walking in obedience and all that comes with that, then you look over here to the alternative and you see where evil desires and where they lead you. You get some perspective. You get a vantage point. That plays into this. And there is at this point also the fact of the power of the Holy Spirit to do amazing things in us. This, as I've already suggested, is, was the key to Jesus successfully meeting Satan on Satan's turf. And Jesus defeated him. It was in the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 4 in verse 1 Matthew 12, 26 and 28, where Jesus in that discussion of the unpardonable sin says he does the miracles, he does what he has to do in the power of the Spirit. And so I will need that power of the Holy Spirit. Good desires come from God. And we replace evil desires with good desires. And then those temptations that come at us with a vengeance, they will begin to lose their appeal. Now this is over time. But a flawed view of God here, dear friend, is the mother of a thousand heresies. So be rich, rich in your attraction to God in his beauty and the desire to please him. And therefore, avoid the circumstances then that lead to temptation as best you can. Starve the evil desire. And work at the level of the desires that pull you toward disobedience. How can we come to the place where the bait is not attractive to us? The simple answer is to have a better choice. Hate what is pulling you away toward the baited hook. So the decisions that you make. And all right, time for maybe just a few little examples here to give you an idea of what I mean. You know, God has given us a we're not left to uh, stumble around in the dark on exactly how to be protected in the battle with temptation. You go to Ephesians 6 and the whole armor of God. You have offensive and defensive weapons, much is made of the fact that most of the weapons there are defensive. The helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, and the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and the sword of the Spirit. And the sword of the Spirit being an offensive weapon. But the point is, 
is that we need to be developing in our skill and putting on, really, that's just a metaphorical way of saying, put on Christ. And then this is your best in the context there. This is your best, this is your advantage in dealing with Satan. That you're filled up with Christ in your life and, and know, therefore, your weapons. Know your weapon. Know the scriptures. I'll come back to that. Be steeped in your knowledge of the word so that scripture comes and works and has informed your conscience and you can meet the temptation on its own grounds. All right, let me go to the conclusion now. I'm out of time. Oh, where did it go? All right, here we are. I want to come now to a conclusion, and I'll add some. Uh, I have another point. I'm, I'm deleting it, but I, I have a little acronym, FLEA that I've worked through with you before and I'm where I take the F and the L and the E and the E, but I'm going to delete that. You can make a note where I've uh, worked through it in 1 Corinthians 6. But I want to just go down to some questions at this point, and I've got about one, two, three, four, five. I've got a few of them there in your notes, may all of them. First of all, question, what if I am continually defeated by a particular temptation? Particular temptation. Um, for example, let me get me throw out some of these. Um, let's say the temptation, the temptation of a lady who wants to have a different figure. She wants to be skinnier than she is. She wants to look like one of those willowy models that are thrown at you on car commercials and everywhere else you look in TV-dom. That, so what does she do? She then begins to perceive she's tempted not to eat right, to deny herself nutritional foods, to spread lettuce out across her plate and make you think she's really eating. Or let's say that could be a man or a woman on this. I'm not picking on the ladies. But you get into a period where you're discouraged and you're sad. And the only thing that can make you comfortable is to turn on your favorite TV program and just sit down with a box of cookies and some ice cream. You think that may be a pull. Or someone has offended you. And you have to make a choice on whether you're going to connect with them when you see them in the fellowship hall. You see them in the service. You get up, you stand up and say, oh, there they are. I'll walk over here. Point of temptation. You get my points of temptation that I'm giving to you here? Let's say it's a young girl, a teenage girl. And it's her desire is for some prestige within a group, peer pressure is such, that she's got a lot of competition with her friends over Appearance, look, boyfriend. So she sleeps with her boyfriend to keep him because he happens to be maybe viewed at that time by, as a hunk, somebody, the catch of the day. So she sleeps with him to keep him so that she can have that, she can have that, uh, that uh, perk as she would de determine it to be. Um, or let's say that You've got a highly stressful day routine, life, job, season of life. And coming in at the end of the day that, you know, you just know alcohol just really mellows you out. It just calms you down. And you can just sit there and after a couple of beers or whatever, you know, you 
could this be a point of temptation? Could there be difficulties there? And you can go on and on and on with these things, and you get my drift. What if I am continually defeated by a particular temptation? Well, I would ask the question, how's your resistance? What do you really want? Is it possible that you may could find those emotional, that emotional sedative that you want? This is to the reason the young people, I guess, would go for marijuana. I've never smoked marijuana, but from the way I hear people describe the effects of marijuana, I said, why would I want that? Um, is, there, is there a better way to get what you're getting from that plus what it does to your brain cells? And, all right, let me go to the next question. Are there times in life when temptations may be especially intense? My answer there is absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, scripture tells us that there would be such in a marriage, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But husband and wife and their sexual life, their intimacy, relationship, um, it begins to get compromised. And for whatever reasons, can that up the temptation factor? Absolutely. It's hard for women to understand that as maybe as men would readily understand it, but it can happen. Are you involved in some conflict and difficulty and you've got a disagreement with someone? Then the intensity of anger or the temptation of anger coming forward. Weariness and discouragement. You get physically down and get depleted and you're not, you're not well. Maybe you go through a period of time, the flu, and then you get the complications that come from the flu. Could you be susceptible to some temptations? Yes, you could. You know, certain medications can, can make you even more temptable at some points. You, those of you who've had to deal with medications, you know that often what they give, they take away. <laughs> and uh, I know that, uh, I know I haven't taken steroids that much, but I know one experience I had with it, I'd say, I would really have a battle on my hand if I had to be on a regular regimen of steroids, something steroid-based, and what it can do to you. And so know your medications and what that, how that may be affecting you. So, yes, you can have those. And then uh, I have another one here. Can Satan and demons tempt the Christian? I'd say yes, but we're responsible, so I'm not going to go that. But what are some of men's, male of the species, special temptations? I would say, and then I have the question follows it up, what are some of women's special temptations? I heard this. um, This was a... um, the second hand, but the person said it was a really reliable person, and he was quoting some study that was conducted at the University of Wisconsin. And it was determining the difference between men and women with their thoughts and where they run. And they were put in, uh, men were put in their, in their own group and put for 10 minutes, or it was either 10 or 30 minutes, I forgot the time, in a room where nothing to read, nothing to do, just there were their thoughts. And women were put in the same situation. Nothing to do, nowhere to go, nobody to talk to, just your thoughts. Then they came out of this and they were interviewed and they were to, to determine what was it that was the, were the characteristics of your thoughts. What did you think about uh, most often in that 10 or 30 minute period? You know what it was? This was conducted by a university. This is not a joke. <laughs> you know what it was with men? Sex and sports. 
You know what it was with women? Rehearsing her last conversation that she had had with someone. All right, there's a lot to unpack with that example. Women are wired differently than men. So men are going to face some special temptations. It's no accident that men are especially, young men are attracted to gaming, which can become an addiction and time and energy because of issues of competition and assertiveness and power and so on. And for women, what might they face? Well, a woman faces particular risk, uh, issues with regard to risk-taking, to avoid risk. I'm being general. I know this is generalization. There are exceptions. But insecurity. A woman fights special battles within issues of security or lack thereof. I think that explains why sometimes women can get themselves into relationships with men that you wonder, where, why in the world is she connected with that guy? <laughs> and uh, that could be one of, the, one of the reasons. And so a woman with her, with her hormonal um, flows and rhythms through the month and through life presents its own special set of temptations. So I'm being surface here. I know there's more to be said, but it's just the whole area of temptation is awareness, a God, a a hungry pursuit of God, building your resistance up, equipping that conscience, which is so powerfully strong with truth and a love for God, the desire to please him, being alert to your circumstances. Let's pray. Lord, I know that every one of us here tonight, you know us better than we'll ever know ourselves. And you know where we're apt to be tempted, whether it's to um, being entertained more than we need to be, or whether it's jealousy, or overeating, whatever it may be. God, we need your help. So I will trust, I ask you, Lord, to work on us now as we go from here, talk, think, pray, and reflect upon this and the message we heard this morning to deepen our love for you. In Christ's name, amen.